Blog Talk Radio.
This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, September the 17th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the humanitarian disaster in Derna, Libya, where the continuing impact of the floods are causing enormous challenges. The International Monetary Fund has pledged to allocate a loan to the Kingdom of Morocco that is reeling uh, from a recent earthquake uh, that has killed thousands. Ethiopia in the Horn of Africa has praised the China-led Belt and Road Initiative. We'll have details on that as well. And the United States uh, hegemony is being fought uh, by progressive forces throughout the world. In the second hour, we look uh, at the full membership of the African Union in the Group of 20, the G20. Later, we explore the issues which will be addressed at the upcoming 78th United Nations General Assembly in New York City this coming week. Finally, we review uh, the visit of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea leader, Kim Jong-un, uh, to uh, the Russian Federation. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We will take our musical interlude uh, with Dr. Nico Cassandra, uh, one of the legendary uh, African Congolese guitarists and composers. Let's listen in. <laughs>
ma petite Deliciana. Licamboca ni mamá, Nayoka ki pena sango, Gayuayo, Natikala, Senama banzo.
Mais qu'est-ce que c'est pour une histoire Mais je n'ai rien compris. Des vieux des cantonniers. Mais les ninabelles. Mais ils ont la vie dans la tête. Ils ont la tête pour la conquête. C'est. Ils ont français. Ils ont la vie. Ah. C'est. Libala Oyo. Nabalande Makambo. Balinga Boyo Kandeli Kambo.
of uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra. Uh, we heard. <laughs> 
Tunda na maboko Mwaka mama Oya titenge Atuna baninga na imba Nopia kalambo ya kikono peranga Mwaza Titenge Washington, 
London, Paris, and Brussels. The oil-rich uh, country has been divided uh, between rival administrations over the last nine years, uh, with an internationally recognized government, in quotes, in the capital of Tripoli. And then there's the rival authority in the east, uh, where Derna is located. Uh, both are backed uh, by international patrons and armed militias whose influence in the country has ballooned uh, since a NATO-backed counter-revolutionary uprising toppled the Pan-African statesman Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, some 12 years ago. Numerous United Nations-led initiatives to bridge the divide have abysmally collapsed and failed. In other news, uh, in neighboring Morocco, the International Monetary Fund has reached a staff-level agreement with uh, the country to provide a significant $1.3 billion loan. That's according to IMF Managing Director Kristalina uh, Georgieva. She told this to the international press on Friday. Loan aims to strengthen Morocco's resilience to climate-related disasters, particularly uh, in the aftermath of a devastating 6.8-magnitude earthquake that struck the high Atlas Mountains, uh, resulting in the tragic loss of nearly 3,000 lives. Georgia Jiva's uh, announcement comes amidst rising speculation about whether or not the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank will take place in Marrakesh uh, this year. The earthquake uh, caused extensive damage in the city's historic Medina Quarter. However, uh, Moroccans remain committed to the meeting, according to Georgieva. Listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, the country stands ready to further deepen cooperation with China under the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI. That's according to a senior Ethiopian official. Ethiopia attributes its double-digit growth in the past decades to investment from China, the kind of infrastructural development booming in Ethiopia is basically because of Chinese investment in roads, bridges, and railways. Timasing Tilahun, Deputy Commissioner of the Ethiopian Investment Commission, told this to the Shinawa News Agency in a recent interview. In relation to the Belt and Road Initiative, we are co-beneficiaries of this global initiative in all aspects, Tilahun noted. He said cooperation with China and implementing the BRA over the past decade has contributed to the realization of various infrastructural projects and the boom in the, in the line of manufacturing sectors, while creating abundant job opportunities for Ethiopian youth. The Ethiopian government values its economic and political re relations with the People's Republic of China at a very high level. Our partnership is strategic and based on mutually beneficial manners. That's according to Talhoun. They went on to say, we have been committed to our economic and political partnerships in the past, and we will definitely continue uh, to strengthen and further cement this particular relationship that we have with China. And finally, the United States' quest for military, economic, and political hegemony is no longer tenable as a more humane multilateral order emerges throughout the world which has been largely shaped uh, by the bulk of the global South. That's according to a Kenyan scholar. The origins, facts, and perils of U.S. military hegemony is a report recently issued by Shinawa Institute, the think tank of Shinawa News Agency, 
trace the roots of U.S. military hegemony, explored how America has pursued, maintained, and abused this military hegemony, and shed light on the perils of the country's hegemonic practices, said Hassan Kaniniji, the director of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies, a Nairobi-based policy think tank. Kaniniji uh, said that America's military adventurism abroad and its push for neoliberal economic policies have left the world more polarized, noting that the unrestrained and unilateralism that the United States espoused after the end of the Cold War more than three decades ago created a grave political and economic crisis in uh, the global south, especially on the African continent. A rising China, according to Kananiji, has stabilized the multilateral system. To the chagrin of Washington, who irrationally pursues unilateral domination using military and economic might, the rise of the People's Republic of China has brought opportunities and provided alternatives to Africa and the global south, he told Shinawa in an extensive interview. With that, we'll conclude our Pan-African Newswire segment. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you would like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, September the 17th, 2023, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Thank you. 
Jimi Hendrix Experience uh, from their second album entitled Axis Bowler's Love. Uh, that track was called One Rainy Wish. And there's still uh, discussion and analysis about the recently held Group of 20 or G20 Summit that took place in New Delhi, India. And this is another uh, analysis and debate over the relevance of that uh, summit and also the admission of the African Union, the 55-member uh, organization uh, representing the Africa region, into the G20 uh, with full membership. Let's listen to this report. China Global Television Network. The African Union is now a permanent member of the G20, and it came quickly and surprisingly after years of unsuccessful attempts. Looking back, it was perhaps the continent's biggest takeaway from the 18th G20 summit meeting in the city of New Delhi in India. So now there is South Africa and the African Union as members of the club. And of course, Nigeria is in the queue waiting after filing for membership as well. But to what end? And more importantly, why was Africa's membership to the G20 fast tracked? I'm Uchechi Okoronkwa. Welcome to Talk Africa. African leaders have hailed this decision of the G20 to admit the African Union as a permanent member. Before we begin our discussion, my colleague Chao Mugono tells us more. The African Union's admission to G20 is a momentous step. Until recently, South Africa was the only African country member. The AU's membership was announced at the recent G20 summit in India. To my great satisfaction, the admission was approved at the opening of this summit. His Excellency Modi, the Prime Minister of India and the members of the G20, endorsed the ascension of the African Union to this major economic decision-making body. Asumani says the AU's entry would provide a greater voice to the Global South within the G20 adding that the African continent now has an opportunity to further its agendas on the global stage. Of course, it will help a lot. Africa has, of course, internal issues. It must find solutions to those issues but with multilateralism. Today, we cannot work alone. We have to work with our countries and therefore those powerful countries from the G20 can help us in those issues. Collectively, the 55-member African Union has a GDP of 3 trillion U.S. dollars with around 1.4 billion people. Chao Hono, CGTN. Well, joining me now to discuss that historic inclusion of the African Union into the G20 and certainly the context in which this landmark decision has been made are from Johannesburg, Ron Derby, who is an editor-in-chief of The Mail and a Guardian. And from Lagos, Cheta Nwanze, a political analyst and lead partner at SBM Intelligence, 
And from London, Charlie Robertson, Head of Macro Strategy at FIM Partners. Welcome, gentlemen, uh, to the program. And let's delve uh, right into this uh, development. Cheta, and I'll start with you. Seven years now, African nations have been uh, trying to get into uh, the G20 bloc. Why do you think the African Union has been admitted, especially now? Oh, thank you for having me, Uche. Um, the admission of African nations at this time is uh, simply on the altar of geopolitics. Um, basically, there's... Um, the world is moving towards multipolarity. Things are changing from, um, we are moving from a world that was undisputedly led by the United States and its rules-based order to one that in which um, you have um, in the U.S. on one side and an emerging partnership of uh, China and Russia on the other. And that partnership a few weeks before had um, opened up the bricks to new members. So admitting the African Union into the G20, which to all intents and purposes um, is led or is driven by the, um, by the Western alliance, um, is something that's they, that makes sense for them. Um, basically, everybody is looking for, uh, for allies and um, getting new people on the, at the table is something, is basically West, what we're seeing is chess pieces being put in position. Hmm. Well, Charlie, I'll ask you, uh, what is your take on the geopolitical, or, or rather the geopolitics of it all? Because the move will give uh, AU the same status as the EU uh, in the bloc. Is it clear exactly what status Africa will hold? I, mean, I think the problem there is that even the EU uh, chief, and, and the EU is, does at least have its own single currency and does have uh, you know, its own central bank, Many people don't take the head of the EU very seriously, um, and and we've seen examples of that in Moscow, where uh, I think Putin was was ignoring the head of the EU to talk to Germany's Chancellor or the French President in a recent meeting a few months ago, um, and and that's even more true, I think, of the African Union. Unfortunately, I, I don't know who the head of the African Union is, um, and I, um, and but what's worse is that I don't need to know, because it's not, it doesn't play a role. Um, in terms of, of meaningful votes or, or economic policy making that, that actually impacts on markets. And certainly a lot of people uh, will agree with you both. But I want to turn to Ron because until now South Africa has uh, been the only African nation uh, in the G20 uh, bloc as a G20 member. So give us a sense of how, what role the country did play. Uh, was it meaningful at all uh, in terms of the role it played in the global body? So... Our discomfort here down south in South Africa has always been the discomfort that South Africa has found itself being the spokesperson for an African economy. So whilst I agree with both my panelists that the AU as a body is not that important, and I guarantee they'll be probably ignored when it comes to meetings around, this, around G20, it's just about getting a voice outside of South Africa. Because clearly, even in the growth of the African economy, South Africa is, has been underperforming how many, 10 odd years. So this is a chance for, and I think our president really pushed for this. Well, it has been a certain sense of uh, discomfort even in local circles that we're the only one in this body of G20. And as, as, as I said, the shifting geopolitics now, we're able to trying to find a new ally and it has opened up the space for a broader conversation with the AU. But I, I do think individual countries are more important than the AU. Uh, so in Nigeria, we have Nigeria on this call joining the G20 probably a bigger story in, in of itself because AU will be ignored pretty much like the EU is. 
But I, I do think within this grouping, just having South Africa there was always a very weird thing for all of us in, in South Africa as well. And Chata, I just want to quickly ask you what your take is on what Ron just said in terms of Nigeria uh, wanting to join the bloc. Uh, do you think uh, Nigeria has a good chance? Uh, what, what does Nigeria have to offer? Well, um, not much, um, sadly, and um, same as South Africa. Um, if we were to look at it on a country-by-country basis, there are only 19 members in the group. Um, the, e- the G20 was formed, um, what was it, in 1999, based on um, the leading economies at the time. Um, and South Africa at that time was without doubt um, one of the top 20 economies in the world. Unfortunately, 20, uh, 24 years later, and things have changed significantly. Um, Nigeria is now the largest economy in Africa. Egypt is the second. South Africa is the third. Not, no African country in its own right um, should be in the G20 if we look at it based on the reason that the, G, uh, the G20 was formed. Um, this was um, in response to the debt crisis of the late 1990s. Um, the truth is that African economies have not have punched well below what they should be able to. And um, as an African living in Africa, um, what I would be more concerned with is also um, getting the African Continental Free Trade Agreement off the ground. Because it's that internal trade that will actually enable us to grow properly. Well, I want to delve... Uh, go uh, ahead, Charlie. Oh, so there's a couple of things. Firstly, I just to, to back up Ron's point, if I was at the African Union now, my big priority would be trying to build trade links to the, to the ASEAN countries. If I had a, if I had a big geopolitical priority, mm. I'd want to be doing a free trade area with the, some of the fastest growing economies in the world. And Fim Partners does a lot of work in those countries because they're doing so well. Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia. These are, these are boom stories. And... Mm build trade links with those guys, looking to a future of, of kind of with, with regards to minerals, or electric vehicles, all of this. Hmm. That, that's what I would be prioritizing. More beneficial for Africa. But I want to delve further into something that all of you have talked about, which is the fact that the AU membership is more about geopolitical, geopolitical tensions uh, right now. And we heard President Modi saying uh, that this uh, move was to transform the global trust deficit right now into one of trust and reliance. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Charlie? Some believe the AU's membership, of course, is driven by these tensions. Do you agree? Is this just a symptom uh, of all that's going on right now? Uh, I totally agree with what Chetta said at the beginning. This is, this is geopolitically led. We're going to a multipolar world. I, I agree. Um, I, in terms of the trusts and so on, I, I, it's another talking shop, and even the UN you know, a lot of these leaders are going to go from this and they're going to head off to the, to the United Nations and there'll be yet more talking. I don't know what they're mostly doing. The one thing that I am seeing the G20 talking about, where there's a relevance to the continent, is on the, the debt issue. That, that is a problem not just in Africa, but also countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Laos. Uh, there's, there's this issue of what can the G20, and that is often the, the wealthier countries, what can they do to try and ease the debt burden. Um, mm-hmm. That's been something that Modi has prioritized when he's with the presidency of the G20. And, and, and in that regard, again, it, it probably helps to have an African Union representative around the table. I don't yeah. think it'll make much difference, but it helps. <laughs> and, and we'll get into uh, that a bit later. But Ron, I want to ask you, do you think this is also an effort to minimize or scuttle uh, the influence that BRICS uh, was starting to build? I think it's... Uh 
to balance it out. I think uh, Modi was here in South Africa a couple of weeks ago, and he was uh, signing up to the BRICS and expansion of BRICS. But I think I, I had a chance to be around his people. They're kind of worried. I think India is stuck in, in, in a place where they are not as they're not in the position of a China, right? Where China and the U.S. clearly on a on a collision course. And so India sits itself there, still being brought in, being, I don't know, being cushioned and, and played with the West. So still have friends in the West and pretty much still want to play in, in this BRICS uh, backyard. So for India, and I, and I get the push is, let, let's bring Africa into G20. So it's almost to benefit the West. So the West has some sort of, I don't know, is it a, is a PR as a, a window into Africa? Was it, as, as Charles Charlie says, the growth is going to come from a, a Asian countries, right? Uh, that's where it goes to come from as a young populace. So this is a potential. That's where we should all kind of look towards if we're looking for for Africa to grow grow itself out of a position it's in. And that's, yeah, that's where we all should be focusing our energies on. Benefits from G20 are the Western nations, right? We're getting AU into there, and suddenly, so they talk. Uh, the African story is, changes somewhat when it comes to G20, which which has largely been dismissive of African economies and countries over the. 20 odd years since this formation. Well, I want to continue uh, on a more positive note, uh, as you started there, uh, Ron, uh, because as you've all alluded to, the AU's entry into the G20 could help uh, do certain things like diversify its glo Africa's global alliances, also open new avenues uh, for cooperation. So, Cheta, what opportunities do you see specifically that could actually help transform the status quo? geopolitically with the AU as AU's entrance into the G20? I'm sorry to sound so, uh, to sound um, a bit negative, but I don't see anything. And let me mm. tell you why. Um, the African Union, as we've established, is, um, is weak economically, is weak geopolitically. Um, it doesn't really speak with one voice. Um, the African Union is an amalgam of depending on who, of 54, 55 countries, depending on who you speak with. And each of them have their own interests. I mean, look at what is happening, for example, with the cool belt in the Sahel or in Central Africa. There are different ways of looking at things. And I kind of get um, a bit worried about this whole idea of looking at Africa as a block. This is a diverse continent, the second largest continent in the world. Um, I would be a lot happier if we have, for example, the ECOWAS, the SADC, the East African community trying to move their things. because geopolitically and um, in the emerging world geopolitics will drive a lot of things geopolitically we have different interests so for example people on on the eastern seaboard of africa and in the rift valley they have closer historical links with with asia they must do stuff with asia those of us on the west coast we will have to do stuff with asia yes it's inevitable but we also have links with uh, based on geography, just geography alone, we're on the same, we're, we have links with Europe. So we must explore those. Um, so just expecting the whole of Africa to move as a block um, doesn't quite sit well with me. On the, on the other hand, I, I, like I said earlier, I think that we need to get the African Continental Free Trade Agreement up and running in reality. Because mm. once we, be, we can begin to trade properly within one another and integrate properly, then we will be able to present a stronger unified case. Right now, there isn't any. There just isn't any. 
Well, gentlemen, we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll try to answer the question, can the African Union leverage this G20 membership in order to push for the reform of global structures and systems that, of course, have played a role in economically marginalizing the continent? Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me are Ron Derby, Cheta Nwanze, and Charlie Robertson. Now, of course, uh, before the break, uh, we were discussing quite a number of things. We looked at the significance and the context of the African Union's inclusion uh, into the G20 bloc. But let's now examine whether Africa can push for change, for reforms from within, uh, also uh, looking at a global system designed rather to marginalize uh, the African continent. And Charlie, let me start with you, because African nations... Uh, they have been advocating for reform, uh, especially in the international financial architecture, uh, reform that includes fair treatment uh, by financial institutions, debt relief uh, possibly. Uh, what is your take on whether we're likely to see the G20 members uh, working with Africa to change that? I, I, mean, I think most of the change that we should expect on the global financial architecture is really a big argument going on between the U.S. and China. Um, as to whether China, which since delivering universal adult literacy, since getting massive domestic savings has taken off and become second biggest economy in the world, but that is not recognized in its voting weights in the IMF. Uh, it's not recognized at the World Bank either. Um, and as a result, we've seen then China say, right, well, we'll set up our own bank, the New Development Bank, or the AIB, AIIB um, mm -hmm. for, for Asian infrastructure. Um, so I think that's the big, the big debate. I don't think changes in the international financial architecture are going to give particularly bigger weights to, to African economies without the justification that China's got for it, which is that China's massive. Um, but what we are likely to see is continuing discussion, well, and it's already gone on for two or three years, continuing discussion about how to manage the debt loads that have been built up over the last 20 years. Um, and, and the G20 is going to play a role in that because of Germany and France and the UK and the US being the key power brokers in the G20. Um, and, but, but China's in that forum too. So it's one of the, one of the places that actually everyone can get around the same table. Mm -hmm. Well, Charlie, what's your take uh, on what Charlie said? Uh, do you think we're going to see continued uh, discussions? And I want to talk specifically uh, on an issue such as the delivery of that long-promised $100 billion a year from wealthier nations in climate financing for developing nations. Uh, also on issues such as the global tax on fossil fuels. Do you think we'll see continued conversations or will we, will we see this G20 membership sparing progress? I think that we'll see continued conversations. I, I'm not very sure that we'll see progress um, because it's not, again, again, the geopolitics will, will get in the way. Um, 
it's for example in terms of uh, climate change uh, climate climate change all sounds good on paper but there's an energy crisis in Europe at the moment so climate change is going to take a back seat that's mm-hmm. the that's the brutal truth African countries need to industrialize and um, they can't do that without a lot of energy um, so those conversations will continue to happen because a lot of Africans are going to start pointing out what they see as the hypocrisy of um, of the larger nations. Um, the the two biggest emitters are, are the U.S. and China. Um, India is on the is on the fast track to join them. Europe still does its own emissions, and um, unfortunately, because of the uh, conflict in Russia and Ukraine, um, more and more Europeans are going back to dirty fuels in order to stave off energy um, the um, rising energy costs. So these issues will remain on the front burner. Um, I don't see too much action. And unfortunately, because of the manner a lot of African countries have handled past deaths, um, the appetite to just keep giving them money, keep giving them loans, is not quite there. I don't see a lot of that appetite just coming out of the, out of the blue. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of naked interests will, as for example, the Black Sea Green Initiative showed, a lot of naked interests will, will trump what people um, talk about. Um, it's not about what they say, but it's about what they do ultimately. Mm. And what's your take on that, Ron? Now that South Africa has uh, uh, voices joining it at the G20, what are your views on what should be Africa's priorities and what really is going to happen? As uh, McCulloch said, the Africa Free Trade Agreement, right? We all know that is the key to unlocking us all. But I, I was thinking about this element uh, with okay, South Africa now finally joined by AU as a voice there. But uh, which goes back to the earlier point about the EU, no one really uh, cares what the EU does in the G20. Similarly, I, I mean, is EU every six months, is it every six months is a new president? So I can imagine that every next G20 meeting, someone else at the table, right? So, but, and so in, in, in what was earlier on about our competing interests on the continent, if you have every year a new country, it was an East African country, a West African country, a South, Southern African country, uh, leading AU, you're going to have different uh, yeah, di- different stories and forced to the table. So maybe there's room for the AU to, let's focus on the reform within the AU. Maybe that's a, a, a questioning point. When, when Paul Gahame, uh, the one who was hanging up AU, he had lots of interesting things to say about the continent as a whole. And he didn't, uh, I'm not a champion of him at all, but he did not speak as Rwanda alone. And he actually, and he actually had some salient points about where the continent is in, in terms of the global stage but he's gone within a year. And so whoever else comes in, is, so, it's all, so, the, so almost Africa's story is dependent on who's ahead of EU. So maybe there's reforms there to be had, similarly what the EU should do there, maybe a three-year, a four-year term. But those are the sort of things that, look, you are in the party. Admittedly, AU is in, within that party, AU is a very small, uh, a, a, a small player within it. But the fact is, for the past 20 to 24 years, there hasn't been any room for that conversation. And I think yeah. the fear of this world of moving towards China, U.S., and where everyone else lies in that, in that battle, we are on the stage. And, uh, and as the, our economies graduate, uh, graduate and they, uh, the, they grow, they're going to be more a significant player. But we've got to make sure AU is fit for purpose for it. Well, I'd like to get uh, all of your takes. Uh, in an increasingly fractured and multipolar world order, what value then do you hope uh, to see the Africa Union bring uh, to the discourse at the G20? Charlie, I'll start with you. I, I'd be very surprised. Um, but 
I, I'd say that about the G20. Um, and I was kind of thinking, what would happen if we didn't have the G20? Who would, who would notice? What's it done ever that, that is actually meaningful? Um, and um, I recall the one thing I, I do know, and it's the only thing I, I can think of that they've done, which is back in 2009, there was a G20 meeting where there was a big, they helped agree on this big distribution of IMF cash uh, through the special drawing rights. Um, it's not strictly speaking IMF cash, but cash, the IMF SDRs. Mm. Um, and it helped bring the, the, the world economy out of the global financial crisis. But what I heard afterwards is that wasn't a G20 decision. And that some countries, and I've spoken to officials from other countries in the G20, they said they had nothing to do with this. They, they didn't even have a policy on this issue. They didn't know what to say. And these were well-established countries that have been around for hundreds of years, and they didn't have anything to bring to that discussion. It was led by Germany, UK, and US. And, and I, so I think the idea that the African Union, with the lack of capacity that many local governments across the continent have to, to have joined up policy even on economic issues within a country, what are the odds that we're going to get an African Union of over 50 countries coming up with a unified policy stance. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, I can't see a coherent voice coming from the African Union, and that's, uh, but I'm not particularly criticizing the AU about that, because even governments, when, they, when the G20 did do the one thing it's ever done, you know, most governments didn't play a role at that discussion around mm. the table. Mm. And what's your take, Ron? Are you hopeful at all that the AU can bring some little value uh, at the G20? It's hard to find, but I'm going to push ahead and find something that I, I think, as a champion of multilateralism, as the continent, when the continent is exposed to East and West, as one continent that uh, I think we can't go and decide, okay, we, we, let's, let's put our, all our loss for the East, and neither can we do with the West. So as that anchor, we kind of need both uh, sides of the world, the East and West, divide to, to trade with and to grow ourselves out of it. So, it's another voice in that push, and I guess all of us here would want a world like that, right? Where we don't go back, slip back into the old, uh, the end of the 20th century. So, as that, yeah, as that symb symb symbolic, <laughs> symbolic uh, member of the G20, and just if you go to any president on the continent and talk about the fact that trade needs to grow between inter inter African trade needs to grow, they'll all say, yeah, we've all signed up for it. We just don't know how. The Africa Free Trade Agreement is mm. the hope. And we hope that works integration. Uh, but I almost say, in nature, Africa has to sit for multilateralism. We can't. We can't swing on either one of, the, of those two spectrums. So that's, I guess, symbolically, that's what, what the AU can do in there and talk about. I mean, I know South Africa in particular, because we, the bottom of the continent, we have the Indian Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, simply can't be aligned with anyone and their dogs. So we, Ramaphosa uh, and presidents before, have all gone in there and just on, on the basis of like, hey man, everyone's our friend, we all need to find a way to grow. So I guess symbolically, the AU being there is just, that's the champion for that multilateralism in a world that, as we all know here, has become a rather bipolar, rather, rather, scary, rather scary backyard. So mm -hmm. that's symbolically, that's the AU for now. But I do think, you know, if I'm an optimist about the continent in 10, 20 years and what, what, what may come if the right policy choices are made. Yeah, so... It's a, uh, that's my only positive, but I, I agree. Right now, as in today, yeah, it's just really symbolic and won't do much uh, given the strength of the symbolic. 
And what's your take, Cheta? I mean, there's been some talk about this admission into the G20 uh, uh, as also a sign that Africa is now being realized as a global power. Are you hopeful in any way uh, that this could bring some change? I think in the course of this conversation, we've established that, um, the, that the admission into the G20 is largely symbolic. Um, I think that um, one of the things that we need to learn how to do as a people um, is to um, parley whatever advantages we may have or to look for advantages in whatever situations may exist, even if cynically. So as an example, one of the things that Europe is uh, re really frightened of right now is uh, migrants, um, migrants coming from Africa. We could actually, and it's a, it's a very cynical take, but we could actually use that um, to get more development assistance and more trade. I, I would prefer trade rather than aid. Um, more trade, which would enable us to begin to to begin to grow. Um, now, that's that's just me. Um, but aside from that, in the immediate, I don't see any value that we that we truly add. Um, I'm going to take something that Ron said. Yes, there's there's a, there's room for optimism for the future, but provided we make the right policy choices and follow through. It's very important. Um, there, there are so many African countries which make good policy um, announcements, good policy statements, but then follow through is lacking. And that has been one of the problems of the continent over the last 50, 60 years. Follow through. When a new government comes, they reverse everything, and you just basically have to start again. It doesn't help to build the confidence that is necessary for long-term growth. That is something that has to change. Well, thank you so much, uh, gentlemen, for that insightful uh, conversation. And that's where we'll leave it on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests, of course, Ron Derby, Editor-in-Chief of the Mail and Guardian, Cheta Nwanze, a political analyst and lead partner at SBM Intelligence, and, of course, Charlie Robertson, Head of Macro Strategy at FIM Partners. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and, of course, a platform formerly known as Twitter X. You can also watch the show on our YouTube playlist. Do keep the conversation going and join us again next week for more Talk Africa. From me, Uchechi Okoronkwo, and the team here in Nairobi, until next time, it's a goodbye. That was the discussion on uh, the African continent and the G20 uh, based upon the admission of uh, the African Union as a bloc, uh, as a full member of the group of 20. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
showed up tonight. It's really out of place. And we're gonna be here tomorrow. And then and then uh, when is that tomorrow? Yeah, two shows tomorrow. We really enjoyed enjoyed, man. It's too much for the first year. What do you call it? Ninety seven, you're right. Uh, I can't remember it all the time. And um say thank you one more time. Happy New Year. I'll let you meet us. Here you go. That was uh, the Band of Gypsies uh, from their historic uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day uh, concert, 1969-1970, at uh, the Fillmore East uh, in the East Village in New York City. Uh, the Band of Gypsies featured Jimi Hendrix on guitar, uh, Billy Cox on bass, and Buddy Miles on drums. And tomorrow represents the 53rd anniversary of the transition of uh, Jimi Hendrix and we're paying tribute uh, to his music and his contributions uh, here at the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Coming up this week, there will be the convening of the 78th uh, United Nations General Assembly Summit in New York City. We want to listen uh, to uh, an interview with uh, Dr. Amina Mohammed, who is the Deputy uh, Secretary General of the United Nations. Let's listen in. UN Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed, welcome back to SABC News. Thank you very much. Great to be here. As we move into the high-level week of the General Assembly, we see two broad competing themes emerging. Geopolitical divides from the war in Ukraine to coups in West Africa, the conflict in Sudan comes to mind, and then the very broad developmental agenda and a key SDG summit which seeks to reinvigorate momentum on implementation that continues to lag at the midway point of the 2030 development agenda. You say that the United Nations was designed specifically for moments of challenge like those before us. And yet there are very real doubts, DSG, that this institution, in its current form, can meet this moment. How do you thread this needle? It's tough, but we don't give up on hope, right? I mean, this was a very ambitious agenda at a time no one thought we could make the transition from a set of MDGs, eight of them, that were pretty narrow, but they did galvanize the collective response to something that's much deeper that talks about people's economies, people's governance systems, um, the planet itself and the, and the crisis that we're going through. So it's never going to be an easy lift. Um, halfway through, it really is sobering. I mean, the targets that are being met globally, 15% is miserable. Um, and then we are exacerbating this with the crises that you talk about. However, there are signs that in spite of that all, efforts are being made and things are happening. And what we need to do is to come back here and have an honest conversation on how we're going to keep the promise in the second half. Mm. Um, and there are indications of that, indications of that where we're seeing the frustrations um, and the voice of Africa actually out there now. It was before very muted. Now it's out there. It happened at the Africa Climate Summit where everyone is saying, look, we have solutions to offer. This is not just a charity case. Uh, investments are what are needed and this is where we need the investments. We need them in energy. We need them in uh, food systems. We need them in education. So people have been very specific um, and I think that that sort of sobering moment of how far off track we are could at this moment of crisis, which is what we're set up for, um, provide the impetus to, uh, to get it right. The issue of multipolarity appears to be the new buzzword on the geopolitical stage, particularly in the context of growing geopolitical mistrust driven by the big powers, Russia, China, the United States, and yet we have the United Nations that is built on the principle of consensus that is increasingly hard to achieve. We often hear from people like yourself the urgent need to build trust, cohesion, solidarity among member states, but how do you get there in practice when national self-interest and sovereignty 
continues to show themselves as major obstacles to that consensus? I think the, the international impetus to do something has always been in one's national interest. What we have to do is to find common ground in those national interests that will get us back in this town hall to have these discussions. Since the, probably the war in Ukraine, everyone's gone off into their echo chambers where that's where they're getting the responses they need for the electorates they have and whether it's you're suffering under that impact of the war and, and the climate crisis or the lack of recovery from COVID or it's one where you want to get the support you need to do what you need to do to, to respond to the war. It's not in the United Nations and that's what we need to do is to say, look, we've got some problems here that are bigger than any one region or country and it has always been that way. And that's why we have these discussions here. They're not comfortable discussions. You're not going to like hearing some of the stuff that you hear, but you have to hear it in order to find a solution to solve it. And, and maybe uh, in this opportunity of the, of the 78th, we can achieve that. Um, and, and I'm hoping that with the number of heads of state and government that we have coming, the fact that everybody's going to be reminded about the SDG promise, that we can garner some support uh, for for humanity and what, what everyone's facing, which is really, um, it's, a, it's not knowing what's going to happen next. The uncertainty of it all needs leadership and it needs some concrete pathways that people can get back on track. So in the context of that leadership, you mentioned the heads of state and mm. government that are coming, the, uh, but only of the permanent five heads of state and government to attend this year's uh, UNGA is, wait for it, the United States. President Macron from France is staying home. The UK's uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is at home. China, Xi Jinping, and of course Russia's President Vladimir Putin. What does it say, DSG, about the importance of a gathering like this in New York when uh, the power brokers, uh, certainly with the largest clout in the world, are not coming? There are going to be a lot of questions out for, for leaders who have power as to why they're not at the table when the global town hall comes together and they will have the explanations they have. So you give. agree it's not good that they're not? I don't think it's, I, I think it's not good. I think that uh, when uh, the P5 don't turn up for a meeting of this um, importance, it's not just a general debate. It is halfway through what we need to do uh, for humanity in consideration of the planet. And, and these are really big crises when you look at the figures on poverty, inequality, um, and the climate crisis. So they should be here because they are the ones who can step up and make the, the change, the pivot to getting to 2030. Having said that, there are 193 states and there are heads of state and government of countries, small with loud voices, who can move um, people to action. And, you know, we have great women like uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley from Barbados, small island, big voice, has put, has put those issues in front of people where the big leaders have come up to the table. You'll see in the G20 declaration that um, those issues have been acknowledged. We now have a hook. We can take this forward in the discussions that we have um, uh, next week. And, you know, we will miss our big leaders, uh, right. but we will, the show will go on. So in the developmental context, the SDGs are the agreed blueprint for a sustainable and prosperous future. But as you mentioned, right, the latest SDG progress report shows that just 15% of the SDG targets are on track, while progress on 50% is weak or insufficient, while we've stalled or gone in reverse on more than 30% of the goals. What are the consequences of that in action? Well, that's people, right? Um, it is people who are not going to get their children into school. It is people going to bed hungry. It is many humanitarian contexts where um, it is double trouble for those who are having to flee. Many will not survive. Um, it is a lack of investment in infrastructure so that when cri climate crisis hits, 
devastation uh, around, around the world. Um, so it has faces behind those numbers and those percentages that we talk about. And that's, I think, of what is, is what of great concern. But we know that the major challenge has always been the means of implementation. And we're very specific about that because we have asks for um, energy transition. So where are the resources going to come for, in, for, for investing that? But we're not doing energy transition in a silo. We're doing that with food systems and because you need to power the food systems. If you want to have a smart farm, it's not going to come out of fresh air. How do you connect that there? Uh, but even that needs technology and technology and the digital investment. So we're speaking to all of these issues. We know exactly what it is we have to do. Now we have to talk about the financial systems. Um, getting into gear to respond um, and you would have heard the Secretary General um, first of all say that that's not happening because we're in a system that doesn't respond um, uh, to, to the needs but, today. But in terms of that transition we are also seeing some divergent views in terms of for example the uh, conversation around energy transition and fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. One of the key meetings next week is a climate ambition summit and part of that is this race right to eradicate fossil fuels from the planet but countries like South Africa are claiming energy poverty and the need to use natural resources including new oil and gas exploration to strengthen the economy and build the energy security they seek how do you respond to that sort of narrative well the first thing I'd be asking is that are they um, in the narrative that says we've got to see an end to fossil fuels um, and that is the right direction in which we need to get to for net zero and I think every one of those countries will say, absolutely, they signed up to the Paris. But not by 2040 or by 2050. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But I mean, they need to start that journey. And I think, you know, very much uh, countries that had least to do with what we're receiving from climate probably need to look at the, the, the pact that the SG suggests, which is emerging economies um, can do a little more, but the developed economies can do so much more. And somewhere we will find the balance to get transitions that are just and equitable for many de developing countries um, on track. You know, once you start that 10, 20, 30 mile journey, um, if you can accelerate halfway across, it may be that we make those lines. We've just got to start and we've got to do less talking about what is not appropriate and more about what we can get done. Because right now, we're reversing. We're not going forward. And we really need to get forward on those But isn't exploring for new oil deposits reversing? Let me tell you what South Africa's Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe says. Quote, we can't be only about decarbonization. We must deal with energy poverty. We must never allow ourselves to be encircled by the developed nations who fund lobbyists to put our country's developmental needs against their own self-serving protection of the environment. Our country deserves an opportunity to transition at pace and scale determined by its citizens. I mean, that's pretty specific stuff. It's that very, very much specific. counters the narrative coming out so of the It's very specific, but you, you, have, uh, you have conversations on energy security today. You have uh, some of our Security Council members who are putting out a hundred new, um, signing up a hundred new uh, exploration licenses in their territory. Um, these are for countries that are already developed. I think that we have to listen to what um, developing countries are saying. I think that there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of justification to say, yes, my citizens come first. After all, that's why they're elected to government, to take care of their interests. However, I do think that in the green transition, we need to look for those resources that would allow that greener transition to happen faster. In the case of the just transition in South Africa, those resources were not forthcoming as quickly as they thought they would be. 
And by the way, when you're looking at developing countries without the infrastructure to make these transitions really fast, they could leapfrog if they got the resources for the green transition. Yeah, the SDG, if they don't, if they don't, it will take much longer. The SDG funding gap, $2.5 trillion. OECD puts that figure at $4.2 trillion, while many developing countries are buried in debt. And of yes. course, it speaks to that, you know, the, the need for the reform of the international financial institutions. Not well, there you're coming into another issue, which we have said right up on front and center. We have an SDG stimulus that the SG has put on the table, which is for the here and now. And, and that could help with some of the energy transitions that South Africa and others talk about. There is a longer term which needs to start being redesigned today. That's the international financial architecture. It does not work for countries today. It was designed in a time where it was fit for purpose, no longer fit for purpose. No. But it will also, there will also be geopolitical tensions in that discussion because it will include governance and the way these institutions are run. Um, so it, it will be uphill, um, but we think that with the acknowledgement of the SDG stimulus of the G20, which now has become the G21, um, we, are, Union, yeah. we, we are very, um, we're very hopeful uh, that we'll begin to see with institutions we have now some response to the finances needed. In the context of the upward slope that you talk about, one of the biggest threats to the 2030 agenda is not only the lack of uh, adequate resources, right, finance, particularly in the context of that just trans transition, but also DSG, conflicts and the prolific number of coups we have seen in West and Central Africa over the last few years. As we often, uh, as, uh, and as you often know, uh, it's these development deficits that lead to these uh, complicated coups and, and conflicts in the region. What's your reading of what's happening in Africa right now? Well, for me, it's a very big wake-up call to the social contract. Um, you have democracies that are in place. Um, many of them are a work in progress. And, and when they don't uh, deliver for people, it, is, it leaves uh, people and a country vulnerable uh, to instances like coups. And when you're seeing coups that are being celebrated, you have to think twice. Why would that happen? There's coups in the past were never celebrated, um, and, and today they are. So I think it is a, a question for us to look again back inwards. These models for democracy, uh, the, uh, the, the, the resources that are needed for a democracy to thrive, is not just an election. It is about uh, delivering on services for education, for health, uh, for someone to, to have a job, to have hope, to have some predictability that that nation is growing and that they will be a part of it. When that's absent, that's a big problem. Now that's a national problem, but it's also an international problem because we don't live on islands. We live within this global community where the economy itself um, and external factors will come to bear on it. The war in Ukraine seems to have no clear end in sight. The grain deal once lauded as one of the greatest uh, diplomatic achievements by the current SG now stalled due to Russia's exit from the agreement in July over obstacles to its own fertilizer and food exports and complaints that too much of Ukraine's foodstuffs were not reaching poorer countries in need. How will current UN efforts overcome the intransigence we are now witnessing from the Russian Federation? I think it's about talking to all sides on this. Quite rightly, the Black Sea Grain Initiative was an, an amazing initiative that succeeded and, and millions of people di did get fed. But more than, more than just access to food, the cost of living came down. Now, of course, it's, it's skyrocketing again to the extent that you know, debt service payments are taking over from paying for school and education. And it is expensive. And I, I went home recently and, and at home people were eating three times a week. I mean, this is, this is not possible, you would think, in our villages. Um, and this is where there is some production. And so I, I think that we have to, to see that what is happening in Ukraine has direct impacts on livelihoods um, in poorer countries. Um, 
food did get uh, to people in the world and there, there's lots of evidence for that. Um, however, the negotiations that continue now, there are options and, and solutions on the table for which we hope um, Russia will respond to. And uh, as you can see, the UN is working very um, closely with uh, Turkey to see what we can have and what we can get done. The Secretary General, uh, Antonio Guterres, has been clear that the window for peace talks uh, between Ukraine and Russia in line with the UN Charter and international law uh, currently does not exist. But there's also been criticism, DSG, of the UN not fully deploying its good offices. The UN is not leading uh, this conflict towards a viable peace uh, settlement negotiation. What do you make of that criticism uh, in, the, in the greater scheme of things here? I think there can always be more efforts, better efforts, um, but usually, you know, that comes from hindsight is, is 2020 vision, right? Could the UN have done more? I guess it's the simple way. Of I think you'll. I don't think in the current circumstances we we necessarily, as a secretariat and the good offices you talk about, could have done more without the explicit inward uh, leaning um, by member states to make that happen. Um, good offices are, are not used in isolation. Uh, they, they're used uh, in order to, to move two sides or three sides together to get to where we need to so get So what to. then is the role of countries in the BRICS, for example, you know, partners of the Russian Federation, your China, your Brazil, India, South Africa, they're and now a few others, of course. No, I mean, I think you've seen them all come together to try to move uh, Russia to find a peaceful resolution. But are they doing enough? I think they could do more. I think everyone could do more. I think we all need to do more. The war needs to stop. Um, we need to find a pathway to peace. We need, need to, to think less about winning the war and more about how we make, might make peace and we stop the war. And I think for that, uh, perhaps if you see more women at the table, that might happen. We're going to hear a lot about Security Council reform. We're going to hear a lot about international financial institutional reform. Where are we in that conversation from your perspective and how urgent is it to get this done? I think all of it has been urgent um, yesterday. And, and we need to get Security Council reform done and, and member states need to be alert to that. Uh, that's not going to go as, as far in, in further than reiterating its urgency and its need when you don't have some of the major players here. But in the case of the international financial architecture, we have a financing for development dialogue. Ministers of finance are coming, and so I think we will take that further uh, from the opportunities that the Indian presidency or the G20 gave us. You'll see the presidency um, of Brazil now take over. They will be here and it'll be, uh, we're waiting to see what are those, um, you know, speeches, what are those commitments that they will make to take that further. I want to talk a bit about the role of media coverage in the UNGA context. On the one hand, you have this massive developmental agenda that needs attention, but you also then have massive geopolitical divides that tend to overshadow things like the SDGs. You'll be aware of the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Ukraine's president will be in New York and it's likely to get massive amounts of media focus, likely drawing attention away from the development deficits you are now seeking to plug. What does it say both about the role, the media's role, but also about the need for diplomacy to be more effective in resolving the geopolitical issues that continue to distract from the existential threat that a lack of development continues to pose? I think there'll always be that tension. There is a headline that comes out of um, what is clearly um, a, very, a very difficult situation in Ukraine. Um, that leadership is living that right now and so when they come and they speak, that's the here and now and people will want to hear that and they will lean towards it. When you talk about development, you're talking about longer term investments and return. That's much more difficult to get people's attention to. Uh, Any time it has happened has perhaps been with a humanitarian face. 
And I think that's what we've got to do a little bit more with, is with the media, find how we can take the discussions of what is a crisis today um, and see the solution to it in the SDGs, um, in development investments. And perhaps if we do that a little bit better and see how joined up that is, um, maybe we will get the headlines. Um, not, one does not expect always to get them, but at least to get the actions that will build the momentum um, of, of populations to put pressure on their governments and their leaders to do something about it. That it is as important uh, that people are going to bed hungry um, as it is that we are losing lives in a war um, that should not have happened in 2023 in Europe. What is the short answer to that uh, response, right? I mean, we have such short attention spans, DSG. What's the role of the media in terms of covering the SDGs, particularly given at, at this midway point that we are lagging hopelessly behind? Well, perhaps if the media did what we're asking uh, business to do, which is put people and planet at the center of their work, it might work. You've uh, done a few uh, UN General Assemblies over your time at the United Nations. What are you most looking forward to over the next week and a bit? I think most I'm looking forward to the stakeholders that we've opened the doors to because out uh, from those stakeholder gatherings will come many solutions but also the work to do as we leave here. We cannot just leave the problems and the headlines in the United Nations. We have to take them out with us. Homework to do at home for leaders, for constituents, for civil society, for women. Uh, so for me that engagement, the fact that we can bring the world into the UN and then you take out those issues that we have framed for people and for our Earth um, out and get something done about them, something more in the second half. We have to be determined uh, to use those solutions and get them done. We have to reinforce solidarity um, of our human family. That's uh, sadly lacking right now. Amina Mohammed, as always, thanks for making time to speak with us. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Amina Mohammed serves as the first Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations and chairs the UN Sustainable Development Group in conversation with us ahead of the UN General Assembly High Level Week, September 18th to the 26th. That was the uh, first uh, Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Dr. Amina Mohammed, uh, speaking about the upcoming uh, United Nations General Assembly 78th session. Right now, we want to listen to an interview from the South African uh, Foreign Minister, Dr. Nalede Pandor, talking about the United Nations General Assembly. All right, let's take you back now to the story. President Cyril Ramaphosa will join world leaders in New York this week for the annual high-level segment of the United Nations General Assembly that will focus attention on the world's development agenda while grappling with pressing geopolitical divides. Our correspondent, Sherwin Bryce Peace, is in New York. Uh, Sherwin, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. So, so just talk to us a little bit about what we can expect this week on the UN, uh, UNGA agenda. Of course, we know that President Cyril Ramaphosa is on his way and he will be touching down soon. Yeah, our location tonight, right outside uh, the uh, location where the president and his delegation will be staying here in Manhattan. He hasn't landed yet. That is expected to happen in about two and a half hours from now. But as the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has framed this gathering, he calls it a once, uh, a one-of-a-kind kind of gathering. And uh, his Deputy Secretary General, Amina Mohammed, describes it as the public town hall, unlike any other summit, right? We've come out of BRICS. We've come out of the G20. We've just come out of the G77 plus China. But this is the most representative 
unprecedented gathering of world leaders anywhere in the world. All 193 member states will be here. And the focus is very much on the globe's sustainable development agenda. And the cross-currents in terms of that, financing for this development agenda, uh, a just transition when you talk about climate change and the energy transition, in addition, of course, to the multipolarity we are seeing emerging around the world and what, those, uh, what that means for uh, the geopolitical tensions we are seeing in the world, uh, big powers vying for influence, particularly uh, among developing states, uh, and someone that has been in the middle and in the throes of that conversation is none other than South Africa's uh, International Relations and Cooperation Minister, uh, Dr. Naledi Pandor. Minister, always good to see you. Welcome back to New York. Have I framed this uh, correctly in that opening? Uh, I certainly think you have. Uh, good morning and great to be on SABC. Um, I think the uh, themes that are part of this General Assembly reflect global concern about really lagging behind in terms of the ambitions uh, that the globe has had. And I really see the Secretary General uh, sounding the gavel on, you know, slow pace to urge world leaders to give attention to the most pressing problems uh, confronting the globe and to ensure that the marginalized and vulnerable are no longer left behind. So this is a wake-up call. Uh, I think the Secretary-General Summit of the Future will be shaped here because it's out of decisions here, momentum here, that the future will be shaped. Yeah, you talk about the summit of the future. That's, of course, the big summit next year. The big one this year is the Sustainable Development Summit us off and very much focused, uh, Minister, on the means of implementation. On one of, the, one of the side summits is going to be on financing for development, a climate ambition summit, the issue of debt uh, uh, relief for developing countries. Uh, there's a statistic flying around the UN that 3.3 billion people live in countries where they spend more on health, uh, more on debt repayments than on health and ed education. That's a huge problem. Financing the means of implementation is very much going to be uh, uh, part of the narrative here this week. Well, I don't think we need to reiterate the need for finance. This is something all of us uh, are clearly aware of the attempts that our leaders made at the debt restructuring, debt uh, uh, relief really uh, suffered huge setbacks economically in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've been calling for more resources to be made available. We've called for special drawing rights, those funds that are not used by the developed world, which is very rich, to be made available to add liquidity for uh, developing countries. So the issue of finance is very, very closely linked to the objectives uh, that we wish to achieve. And out of here, I think we have to really have a, a dedicated deliberation on reform of international development finance institutions, because clearly they're not playing the role that we expect of financing development and ensuring uh, that developing countries make progress toward uh, addressing uh, the needs and interests of their people. I want to quote you back to yourself, uh, your message to the G77 and China in Havana, Cuba this weekend. Quote, our ambition won't be a popular one. Control of global innovation grants immense power over us to develop countries. This is not in their interest that we succeed. You pointed to the issue of vaccine nationalism. You talk about the lack of financing, the requisite amounts of financing for the climate just transition that we've been talking about. 
is there, there's a sense, Minister, that there's a great deal of frustration that might play itself out here in New York this week. Am I, am I fair in, in stating that? Well, the reason I made that statement is I believe we need to be resolute and serious about what we wish to see. And if we, as developing countries, as countries of the South, do not assert our voice clearly and use our organizational framework to assert that voice in a concerted, coordinated fashion, we're not going to get the results we want. And I think that as developing countries, it's important that we stop undermining ourselves and behaving as though we are weak and irrelevant. We make a significant number, we're a significant proportion of the world's population, and I believe we can make a far greater contribution if we hold the rich to their responsibilities to act on undertakings that have been made time and time and time again and not honored. Let's switch a little bit from development to the geopolitical tensions that you are very familiar with. Uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is expected to be in New York this week. He will brief the Security Council in person at the highest level. Heads of state and he heads of government will be in that meeting. I wonder where South Africa finds itself in that conversation. You say President Ramaphosa will very likely also go and brief, particularly on the African Peace uh, Initiative in that regard. What's your sense of how the big powers are viewing South Africa and the developing world, particularly vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Ukraine, and of course the, the broader uh, focus here on food security, the grain deal which the Secretary General is working hard with countries like South Africa to bring, to bring back, back on track? Well, I think South Africa continues to be part of the global community that is regarded as significant in terms of addressing the challenges that you have referred to. With the uh, Ukraine-Russia peace initiative by African uh, leaders, clearly there's a recognition that peace is the imperative. And I think more and more leaders now about peace. It's become uh, an issue uh, that is broadly accepted by everybody that this will be ended uh, by a negotiations process. Uh, we don't want to see uh, Ukraine and Russia tearing uh, each other apart. It's in the interest of the world to end this conflict. So the role that uh, President Ramaphosa and other leaders have played has been extremely important. In terms of geopolitics, I'm really happy that we're seeing the UN come back to the center. There had been uh, quite a serious marginalization and ignoring of the United Nations as the premier multilateral institution. I now think that uh, its status is in the process of restoration and it's out of what we make of the General Assembly that we will be able to uh, judge whether uh, this uh, assembly will be successful in that regard. I also believe, as G7, it's vital that the issue of UN reform is not forgotten, uh, that the reform and restructuring of international development finance institutions uh, is addressed as well. I mean, we've talked about that for many, many years, decades even, on, on reform. How do you move the needle forward, Minister? I mean, that's the big question. There's a great deal of frustration. Russia, Ukraine, Palestine, Israel. You can mention a number of files around the world where reform sometimes really is at the center of why those processes are not moving forward. Well, I suggested at the G77 that perhaps we need to look at the nature of actions. Uh, that we're taking because petition uh, may not be the most appropriate form. Uh, we need to look at whether there should be a greater activism uh, that we actually say until this matter is addressed.
certain things we will not participate in or particular actions uh, that we will take as developing countries because as a group you cannot be ignored but if you act alone which tends to be the manner in which we behave we fracture our ability to influence uh, we won't get uh, very far so I do that it must be beyond rhetoric I think at the moment we make very nice sounding statements the approaches that we have what we seek to achieve is very progressive but we're not using our organizational muscle mm -hmm. for greater activism and I think we need to move to that stage. I know you need to leave for the airport so a couple more questions before I let you go just in terms of President Ramaphosa's bilaterals I know there's an effort to for him to meet from the South African side certainly with uh, President Joe Biden of course coming off some tensions between Washington and Pretoria particularly uh, in relation to uh, the Lady R the, the subsequent panel uh, of investigation that found no evidence that weapons uh, were loaded onto, onto that uh, U.S. sanctioned vessel, uh, but no walk back from the United States, certainly no public walk back. Have they walked it back privately to you? Well, I don't think countries do walk back, as far as I'm aware. Uh, they always try to hold the line, but we can now see, since uh, we all know no evidence was provided of any uh, weapons uh, being uh, provided by South Africa to but he has silently gone silent on the issue. Uh, we thought there was marvelous intelligence available. It would be provided to Judge Mujapelo. There was none forthcoming. So uh, we're saying uh, we hope, even if it's a whisper, that there'll be somewhat of a, yes, maybe we got it wrong. And it certainly looks like the AGOA Forum is going to go ahead in South Africa in November. That's certainly what the U.S. Ambassador said. So you're right. Uh, we're talking about different things now. Final question for you. Uh, on the national front, the, the President will also engage with a business roundtable on Monday evening, hosted by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, co-hosted by the South Africa's Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. Your expectations, what's that conversation going to look like? Well, I think we want to again reiterate the South African story. We're an attractive destination for foreign direct investment. We want to assure those who are already invested in South Africa, uh, that their investments are safe and we'd like to see more being invested in our country. Yeah, of course, we have to get economic development uh, up, up to par because growing at zero point whatever percent is just not good enough. Not good enough for the jobs we need to create, not good enough for the enterprises that must be started, but there are huge opportunities. Just when you talk of value addition to our mineral stock, huge potential for manufacturing, for increased industrialization. So I think uh, South Africa needs to have a positive attitude because I don't think it's all uh, doom and gloom. I believe there's massive opportunity in our country. We have skilled people. Uh, we have a very good financial sector. Uh, we have excellent minerals that are valuable for so many products throughout uh, the economic value chain. And if we can make good on these positive attributes, I believe we'll see South Africa grow. And of course we have to keep the lights on, right? We're doing so and have to improve on that one. Minister Naledi Pando, good to see you. Uh, off to the airport you go. Uh, I'll just do a link back to camera over here. Dr. Naledi Pando, South Africa's International Relations and Cooperation Minister. You also call her the Chief Diplomat. Off to, meet the, uh, off to the airport JFK to meet President Ramaphosa, whose flight should land in about two, two and a half hours from now. A packed schedule here, Unati. A busy week ahead. Uh, SABC News will certainly bring you the latest. A busy week ahead indeed, Sherwin. Thank you so much for that, Sherwin. Bryce Pease coming to us live there from New York ahead of the annual high-level segment of the United, General, uh, United Nations General Assembly.
That was a report on the upcoming United Nations General Assembly, an interview with South African Foreign Minister Dr. Naledi Pandor. We want to thank our colleagues at the South African Broadcasting Corporation for providing uh, that piece. Also, just this last past week, uh, Kim Jong-un, the Supreme Leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, made a visit to neighboring Russian Federation. Let's listen to a report on those developments. A new 100 years of friendship, the promise of North Korea's leader visiting Russia's president. What sort of new era is emerging in relations between the two? What will it mean for the war in Ukraine? Should the West be worried? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Sami Zaydan. North Korea and Russia appear to be cementing their ties with a high-profile visit this week by Kim Jong-un. He's held talks with Vladimir Putin and discussed defense cooperation. But many in the West are questioning the timing. Both nations are facing international sanctions. Moscow's forces fighting in Ukraine. Well, what are the two leaders hoping to get out of this trip then? We'll put that to our guests in a moment. But first, this report from Fintan Monaghan. Getting a close look. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un got to see all the latest features of a Russian-made fighter jet. On the ground and in the air. This latest stop is in Russia's Far East, as part of Kim's days-long visit to the nation. Two days earlier, he met Russian President Vladimir Putin at a space base. It was their first face-to-face meeting in four years. There had been great anticipation in the lead-up to the summit. The North Korean leader traveled for about 40 hours in his armored train crossing the border on Tuesday. The two held what the Kremlin called very substantive discussions, but little was revealed publicly. I'm honored that President Putin has shown a deep interest, providing an opportunity to engage in a conference at a space launch facility which is like the heart of a space power nation and given us a chance to gain deeper understanding of the current and future of a space power nation. Many believe this meeting could mean new developments in the war in Ukraine and for North Korea's military ambitions. We continue to urge North Korea to meet its public commitments not to support Russia's war in Ukraine. No nation on the planet, nobody, should be helping Mr. Putin kill innocent Ukrainians. Um, and if they decide to move forward with some sort of arms deal, well, obviously we'll take, we'll take the measure of that and we'll, and we'll, and we'll deal with it a- a- appropriately. But Kim Jong-un appeared to express support for Putin's war. The Russian army and people will certainly win a great victory in the sacred struggle for the punishment of a great evil that claims hegemony and feeds an expansionist illusion it will create an environment for peaceful development. Pyongyang is under heavy UN sanctions for its nuclear and ballistic missile program. There are reports of food shortages in parts of the country as its economy worsens. Both leaders have items to trade and pressures at home that might push them towards a strategic partnership. Kim says the trip has elevated their country's ties to a new level. But it may be China's influence that will prove crucial, since both Moscow and Pyongyang rely on it for trade.
Benton Monahan for Inside Story. Well, let's bring our guests in now. We have joining us from Seoul, Andrei Lankov, director of the North Korea-focused news site NK News. In Washington, Jenny Town, a senior fellow at the security-focused American think tank, the Stimson Center. And in Moscow, Andrei Baklanov, vice president of the Association of Russian Diplomats. A warm welcome to you all. If I could start then with Jenny. So, Jenny... What has brought these two leaders together? What's prompted this visit now? Well, this is a relationship that has been deepening for a couple of years now, especially since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, the idea that, you know, there have already been rumors of cooperation, um, of potential arms transfers from North Korea to Russia. I think part of the reason why we see an actual summit now uh, may be because North Korea is just opening from COVID. It's his, uh, Kim Jong-un's first time out of the country since the lockdown in January 2020. Um, but it's also coming on the heels of um, trilateral summit between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. So there may be some of this political signaling going on as well, where if, you know, the, the U.S. and its allies are going to have these high-level political meetings talking about their deepening relationship, so is the other side of that equation. Deepening relationship. Let's go over to Seoul, Andre Lankov. When we talk about deepening relationship, what does it break down to? There have been claims that North Korea wants everything from grain to help with satellite technology, ballistic technology, maybe even submarine technology. What do you make of it? They want everything, as long as it's free of charge. It's a major problem. North Koreans are not known as a nation which is very willing to pay the bills. And they're quite poor, so the good question is not what they want. They want everything, as much as possible, but what they are going to get. And, of course, in this case, Russia is in driving seat, and it, it, Russia will decide what it's going to sell and for which price. All right, let's bring in perspective from Moscow. We have Andrei Baklanov there. So, Andrei... What does Russia need from North Korea? It's been reported in Western circles that Russia simply needs some more artillery rounds, some more bits and pieces for that war in Ukraine. Well, uh, I do not think that uh, Ukrainian angle is uh, the main, uh, you know, point of interest uh, now. Uh, we are much more interesting uh, in Far Eastern situation and uh, it seems to be, and uh, this is the point of view of some of our experts, they think that uh, uh, in the period to come, uh, uh, North Korea can play uh, a role which Cuba played in uh, 1962 uh, in, uh, in the struggle uh, between uh, Moscow and Washington. So uh, mainly uh, what is happening now deals with the Far Eastern situation and global situation as a whole. This contradiction between two military superpowers and the new role that North Korea can play in this, uh, uh, this uh, you know, situation. So, I mean, what do you make of those claims? Can North Korea play a significant role? Do you expect North Korea 
will be providing Russia with armaments and weapons? Well, everybody's speaking about providing uh, our with uh, uh, some armaments and uh, missiles um, uh, made in uh, North Korea. It's uh, irrelevant for us because we do not need uh, this kind of help. Uh, as I told you, much more significant for us uh, to make the United States feel danger, additional danger from the territory of North Korea, exactly like it was in 1962, as I told you, when Cuba... Uh, was uh, our main agent, which uh, gave this feeling to the United States of America. And uh, it was a very important issue. And now we're also at uh, the, uh, the, uh, the point where we need to add something additional uh, to our, uh, to our uh, you know, uh, stance against the United States of America. And this additional element can be a new kind of... Uh, uh, of a danger uh, which constitutes uh, the North uh, Korea. Okay. Jenny, do you agree with that, that this trip isn't necessarily about exchanging military hardware? It's simply a reminder to the West that, hey, don't forget, we have the North Korea card that we can activate. Well, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. Um, I, I do think there there has been expressions of need on the Russian side for um, additional artillery and munitions, and it is something that the North Koreans can provide um, in in systems that are already compatible with Soviet, with Russian systems. Um, will it be game changing in Russia's war on Ukraine? No, of course not. Um, but it can help prolong um, war fighting efforts. Um, but I, I agree with Andre that you know this is this is a larger game that's being played here, um, and we are really seeing the reformation of these ideological blocks and security blocks. So you have the U.S.-led security block um, with U.S., South Korea, Japan deepening relations with South Korea, Japan deepening relations with NATO, um, and then now you also have real deepening. Uh, cooperation and a greater sense of collective security going on between Russia, China, and North Korea, and North Korea playing a really important role as an important security partner to both of them in this sort of block-on-block um, competition. And so North Korea does have higher political value and security value now than it did a few years ago, um, and I think we will see more of this play out um, from cooperation both with Russia and China. All right, let's go to Seoul again, get the perspective of Andrei Lankov there. So ultimately, what would the transfer of Russian hardware mean for North Korea? Is North Korea on the verge of a technological leap when it comes to satellites and rockets? Well, uh, when it comes to rockets, to missiles, they are remarkably successful, and they have already made a technological leap around 2017. When they successfully developed their first intercontinental ballistic missile. Talking about the Russian transfer, I would probably disagree with both Andre and Jenny. I sort of expect that no transfer of the Russian technology is going to happen. Exactly because. Why do you expect that, Andre? Because I don't see what Russia will take from it. Uh, because it's what, uh, what about the theory, Andre, of it will... Russia gets artillery rounds? It's exactly. Uh, artillery rounds will come. But you know how many artillery rounds North Korea should ship to Russia to pay for some kind of 
sophisticated missile technology. And once such technology is sent uh, to North Korea, Russia will lose control over it. North Koreans are known for their wonderful habit of reselling aid they receive, have received from other countries, and they don't see why it's going to be next, uh, uh, this not, not going to be the case. So they not, will not merely build something for themselves, they will happily uh, resell it. They sell this technology to everybody who needs a nice missile technology. And there are many countries in the world. And these countries will pay to North Korea, not to Russia. But I'm pretty sure that the Russian side understands this very well. And all this stuff, all this, you know, decision to have um, the meeting at the space launch facility, all this highly publicized visits to the military factory, everything, for me it looks like a political show. Partially, as Andrei has said, directed at the United States, as a reminder that if Americans are too active, say, in Eastern Europe, Russia will be able to create trouble for the United States in East Asia. However, I would, I would, believe, I would say that the major target is South Korea, not Washington, but Seoul. Why? Uh, there are having talks about possible sales of uh, shipment of the South Korean ammunition to Ukraine. And why North Korea? Tell you, tell what you like. But North Korea is a tiny country with a population of less than 25 million. They claim 25. It's probably really less. And is seriously underdeveloped ec economy. You know, their own official data is that their per capita GDP is $1,300. It's not CIA estimate, it's own North Korean estimate provided to the UN. They cannot produce much ammunition. Right. South Korea can. And Russia has good reasons to make sure that ammunition would not right. arrive to Ukraine. South right. Korean ammunition. All right, let's give Jenny a... Yeah, you see? You made, you made the point. Let's give Jenny a, an opportunity to come back in on this one. Are we making too much of a big deal about this idea of uh, transfer of artillery? Some would point out the point which Andre's making about their production capacity and also the transfer capacity. So, so there's a couple of points here. Um, during the trip, there was no talk about missile technology. Just to be clear, it wasn't that Russia was demonstrating it was willing to cooperate and, and talk about technology transfer on missile technologies. It was really focused on um, rockets and, you know, potentially satellites. There has been, you know, this other tour of an aircraft factory. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with, um, with Andre in the sense that, you know, we're not talking missile transfer of missile technology, and I doubt that we'll see ever transfers of whole missile systems or anything like that. Um, but I do think there's a strong signal here that the North, that the Russians are willing to work with North Korea even on sanctioned technologies, um, including, you know, satellites and, and, um, and rockets, um, that will help advance North Korea's capabilities more quickly um, than what they're achieving on their own. And they have had great success on their own as well. But there are things that they can learn from that will help them accelerate their progress. In terms of their production capabilities, you know, again, this is very unclear of what Russia is even asking from uh, North Korea, if it's just stockpiles or if it is to actually produce more munitions. And I think there is a recognition that if they do want more 
um, ammunitions and, and actual factories. There are other things that Russia can do to help provide the. Welcome back. And uh, that was a debate uh, over uh, the recent visit of DPRK Supreme Leader uh, Kim Jong-un to the Russian Federation. He held high-level meetings uh, with uh, Russian Federation President Vladimir Putin. That's going to conclude uh, our program for today, the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday. September the 17th, uh, 2023. Uh, We've been broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. You can reach the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with a historic uh, jam session uh, between Jimi Hendrix and Taj Mahal, uh, laid down uh, in a studio on January 21st of 1970. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.